0: In the squadron, they called him Bullets, but we call him Greg Kelly. Greg Kelly is on the air
1: on the Red Apple Podcast Network.
0: Hi. Hi. Glorious day. Uh, Totally. Beautiful, beautiful. When is summer over? Like tonight, tomorrow? Very, very soon. Uh, What is up? I have been... Watching a congressional hearing, which is, generally speaking, not the most exciting thing in the world. Um, you know what they have to do. Please, can they do this? You know, you got a, um, a deceptive uh, snake like Merrick Garland uh, testifying. And the whole system is set up, I think, to protect the witness. Five minutes on Democrats, five minutes on Republicans, back and forth, back and forth. Nobody can get any momentum going. Can you imagine in a courtroom... If a witness was testifying, they made an opening statement, and then the prosecutor got to talk to him for five minutes, and then the defense attorney got up, and then the prosecutor, we would never actually have that. So it's very frustrating. It's very hard for these guys to get any kind of momentum. But a couple of things I know about Merrick Garland. Number one, his answers are not terribly revealing at all. Occasionally, there's a tell, all right? He's one of these guys who thinks, if I tell the truth carefully enough, I never have to lie. All right. But I've caught him in some massive deception. Um, and, you know, he's again talking about January 6th. And we are poss- we are investigating and holding them accountable. These it's still the number one priority of the Department of Justice. January 6th, you know, there was <laughs> three hours. They three hours. They couldn't do anything. And then they were up and running to, to liken it to something like Black Lives Matter summer. You know, I know it's not as, uh, it's, I know it's not a tourist attraction, right? I know you don't pay money to go see, say, like a grocery store. You know how many grocery stores were torched, burned to the ground, or gutted and looted? 57 by one count. 57 grocery stores across the country. Have you heard anything about that? How about the people, how about the people who did that? How about the people who burned down the Minneapolis police station, right? Uh, two-tiered justice system, absolutely. All right, look, I do want to share with you. This was, it's only when he gets a little bit hesitant where you can tell, okay, yep, we got him. He's lying. You know, he doesn't admit anything, but it's kind of interesting. I want you to uh, stay with me on this. This is Mike Johnson. He's a, uh, he's a lawyer, congressman, Republican of Louisiana. and He's not as famous as Jim Jordan or Matt Gates, but uh, he's very good. And he sets it up very well, and you can see, you can see the snake that is Merrick Garland trying to weasel his way out of the situation. Cut 27, please. Cut 27.
2: Can you tell us about any briefings or discussions that you personally have had with Mr. Weiss regarding any and all federal investigations of Hunter Biden?
0: I'm going to say
3: again, I promised the Senate that I would not interfere with Mr. Weiss. So
2: you have not, I'm just under oath today, your testimony is, You have not had any discussions with Mr. Weiss about this matter?
3: Under oath, my testimony today is that I promised the uh, the Senate I would not um, intrude in his investigation. I do not intend to discuss internal Justice Department uh, deliberations, whether or not I had them.
2: Oh, okay. So your your testimony today is you're not going to tell us whether you've had discussions with Mr. Weiss.
3: My testimony today is I told the committee that I would not interfere I made clear that Mr. Weiss would have the authority to bring cases that he thought were appropriate. Okay. Mr. Weiss's right. letter.
2: Okay, okay you let me stop. You. For, for a second time, sir, are you aware that FBI officials have come before this committee and they have stated that there was a cumbersome bureaucratic process that Mr. Weiss had to go through to bring charges in another judicial district? You know that?
3: I'm not aware, but that's not true. There's nothing cumbersome about the process. So those whistleblowers are
2: lying to us under oath? They're, those whistleblowers are lying. Let me say talking. that
3: the, their description of the process is cumbersome is an opinion. It's not a fact question. All I have to do is okay, sign a section. Right, let me
2: get to the fact. Mr. Weiss has been the lead prosecutor on the Hunter Biden case since 2018. Correct. I'm sorry. Mr. Weiss has been the lead prosecutor on the Hunter Biden case since 2018. Now, here's the question.
3: He's been the lead prosecutor since he was appointed by President Trump.
2: Okay. why? Let me ask you, why has the Justice Department dragged this investigation out for so long? Does it really take years to determine if Hunter Biden lied on a federal form related to purchasing a firearm? Mr.
3: Weiss was a long-time career prosecutor. President Trump appointed him as... You're not
2: answering the question. Is that standard procedure? Should it take that long to make such a simple... Can I jump in
0: for a second? All right. Time and time again, he keeps saying, Trump-appointed prosecutor. Trump-appointed prosecutor. The Democrats do it. He does it. And nobody challenges it. This drives me crazy. The media, even conservative media, will say, a Trump-appointed prosecutor and David Weiss got there under President Trump. They don't they never tell you anything about about who David Weiss is, all right? So number 1, he is a man about Delaware, okay? That's a very small state. It is inconceivable that he did not meet Joe Biden. We know that uh, at least his law firm at one point was actually working with Hunter Biden. Um but the thing that gets me is his appointment as US attorney was something called a blue slip. A blue slip is where essentially the, the executive branch delegates the appointment to the legislative branch, to the home state senators. And in this case, the home state senators of Delaware um recommended this guy, a blue slip. And it's also like, yeah, we're going to give you this one. Come up with a name and we it's a courtesy, the blue slip courtesy it's called. And Tom Carper, you don't know who that is. Nobody does, but he happens to be the Democrat senator from... Delaware. I had to look that up. And also Chris Coons, slightly better known. The bald guy um, happens to be. He's a senator as well. And they both enthusiastically recommended and then thanked the White House for making it official. They wanted David Weiss. All right. Every time they say Trump appointed, it is deceptive. Uh Chris Coons, by the way, is also known as the father of the and this is very unfortunate, the little girl. Uh, who was felt up by Joe Biden. I mean, big time, uh, when Coons was sworn in, it was really, really gross. It's one of the grossest ones that gets a fair amount of play when we, <laughs> when we go down that road, which we do sometimes. All right, pick it up again, please. Answering the question.
3: Mm-hmm. Give me an opportunity to do so. Okay. He was charged, uh, with that investigation under the previous administration. He's continued. He knows how to conduct investigations, and I have not intruded or attempted to evaluate that because that was the promise I made to the Senate.
2: The whistleblowers uh, gave us testimony about serious misconduct at the Justice Department in regards to the preferential treatment afforded Hunter Biden. Has your office requested an investigation into that?
3: Uh, there are well-known processes for how whistleblowers make their claims. Stop! I'm All right, sp- they
0: are always hiding behind their rules, regulations. Not the law, by the way. Not the law. Not the Constitution. At one point, point, people applaud this, but it's actually it's not as righteous as it sounds. He says, I am not the president's attorney. I am not the prosecutor of the Congress. I, I work for the people, which sounds beautiful. It does, but actually... <laughs> According to the Constitution, and this is bizarre, um, but it's true. It's it's only bizarre because nobody actually ever acknowledges it. But the president actually does have the right to pick up the phone and say, I want this guy prosecuted. Look into this. I want you to look into this. A president has that authority um, in the Constitution. I mean, there's no Department of Justice in the Constitution. Um, but they deny that this happened. And given the state of affairs... Given the kind of expectation of the swamp, the practices of the swamp, the media, um, this is not supposed to happen. But it did happen. We have evidence. We have the New York Times reporting that Merrick Garland was um, discussed by Joe Biden in the White House. And Joe Biden was frustrated that nothing had happened on President Trump against President Trump. Said it out loud to his favorite organ, the New York Times. All right. I'm going to. Jump ahead. This is where it gets pretty, uh, pretty intense. There's a guy named uh, Van Drew, Congressman Van Drew. I think he's from New Jersey, right? Yeah, he was a Democrat. Then he came over to the Republican Party, and man, is he fired up! And listen to the deception, to the the, the wormy kind of evasiveness of uh, Garland as he wraps this thing up. Go,
4: welcome, Attorney General. You know, following your confirmation, Americans were promised they were getting a focused. Nonpartisan to lead their federal law enforcement. I had my doubts back then. And the last two years have more than confirmed, in my mind, those fears. Never in my life would I have thought that I would see such a politicized DOJ. Never in my life would I have thought I would see such a Department of Justice that didn't obey their own rules. Never in my life did I think I would see the egregious investigations conducted under your watch or the blatant disregard of the First Amendment by FBI field offices under your watch. And never in my life did I think I would see our great DOJ turn into a politicized weapon to be wielded by an investigation to attack political rivals. I still hold the thousands of hardworking staff with high regard, but unfortunately there are some within the department, in my mind, who have betrayed their oaths. And for that you must be held accountable. I hold you accountable for the labeling of parents as domestic terrorists standing up for the, their proper education of their own children. I hold you accountable for the anti-Catholic memo. Imagine sending agents undercover into Roman Catholic churches because they were supposedly domestic terrorists. And I hold you accountable for unleashing a special counsel with a history of I'm... botched investigations on our current president political rival. The Department of under your leadership, I am sorry to say, and I am sorry to say, has become an enforcement arm of the Democratic National Committee. If there is a perceived threat to the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party, this DOJ attacks every single time. But when there are actionable threats against Conservatives, this DOJ stays put. Protesters outside violent protesters outside of the Supreme Court Justices' home unpunished. Attacks on pro-life centers, unpunished. The two-tiered system of justice is clear, and it's clear to the American public. And the buck stops with the man in charge. That man is you. The actions of the DOJ are on you. The decline of Americans' trust in our federal law enforcement is on you. The political weaponization of the DOJ is on you. Attorney General, I need a simple yes or no to the following, just yes or no, because we don't have much time. Do you agree that traditional Catholics are violent extremists, yes or no?
3: Let me answer what you've said in that long list of... of, at, of I'll be happy the, to answer all of those. Attorney but General, just, I control the time. I'm going to ask you to answer well, the you, questions you, I you ask. You control time by asking me a substantial number of things. And I, I, I didn't get,
4: ask you those things. I, I made a answer, statement. Uh, Attorney will, General... Through the chair, I ask you, do you agree that traditional Catholics are violent extremists?
3: Okay. I have question. no idea what, your, what the traditional uh, means here. The Catholics, me that go to I church. Your, may I answer your question? Yes, The no. idea that someone with my family background would discriminate against any religion is so outrageous, so absurd. Mr. Attorney General, it was your your FBI
4: that did this. It was your FBI that was sending, and we have the memos, we have the emails, we're sending undercover agents into Catholic
3: churches. Both I and the director of the FBI have said that we were appalled appalled by that memo.
4: So then you agree that they're not extremists. We were appalled by that memo. Are they extremists or not, Attorney General? I think that are they extremists or not, attorney everything
3: general in that memo is are they falling.
4: extremists or not? I'm asking a simple question. Say no. If you think that was wrong, Catholics are not extremists. No. Was there anyone fired
3: for drafting
4: and circuli- circulating the anti-Catholic memo
3: you have in front of you? The inspection uh, divisions, investigation, Just tell me yes or no, please.
0: I don't know. We the have answer. no time. All right. I don't know the answer. You see that. the picture, right? You see? And oh, by the way, he did not. He, he finally pinned him down. Catholics are not extremists. Traditional Catholics, though. Traditional Catholics. I I don't know what you mean by traditional Catholics. Well, I guess maybe I'm a traditional Catholic, right, in that uh I don't think a uh, Black Lives Matter and a gay pride flag should be uh, flying over um, Catholic schools, parochial schools, uh which is happening, <laughs> which is happening. I don't actually like to see the gay pride flag in church, which is happening, right? So am I traditional? All right. Does that make us a um uh, an extremist group does that make my views suspect that's the direction uh this is all going and the indignation the indignation that he displayed there how as absurd it is well he was planning for this he's all I'll get to it all right he's playing a game um he is so deceptive you telling the man impeachment right they were so geared up to impeach Bill Barr. This is the one who deserves it and many others. How's the traffic out there? You know what? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, are we peacefully coexisting with the United Nations? Right? Because all of the, a lot of people aren't actually driving in. It's not as bad as it has been in the past. Although I ran right into a big protest yesterday, about a thousand people really upset with the president of Senegal for some reason. All right. Uh, and I actually met the vice president of Senegal last night don't know what the hell's happening over there politically but uh the vice president was a very nice guy i'll be right back
1: Greg Kelly on the Red Apple Podcast Network
0: Man Curtis um, lots of media attention he's doing the right thing fighting this uh outrageous placement of unvetted, of, you know, just totally who the hell are they? Strangers, illegals coming into this uh, country. They've already broken the law just by right in that status and that and living in residential neighborhoods. It is insane. He's been fighting this all over the place, especially Staten Island, 10, 10 older New Yorkers, like in the late seventies, early eighties arrested. Now it was civil disobedience, Unlike the, uh well, civil disobedience, I hope they're going to be okay. You know, civil disobedience is kind of like part of, of the American tradition, part of the civil rights movement, civil disobedience, right? Um You're, it's, yeah, you're technically breaking the law and you can get arrested, but there's a place for it. And there's a kind of, not special treatment, but we know, we know it when we see it. So does law enforcement. And like sitting down in front of, say, a bank, if you're a, an environmentalist, it's not legal you can't block the entrance to a bank um, if you do it uh, and you, you I saw this happen in Greenwich Village the other day sooner or later the cops are going to show up they may or may not arrest you they may or may not issue you a ticket um and that's kind of it those two women the two women in Washington DC in 2020 they did the same thing at an abortion clinic now the Biden Justice Department they have played all kinds of games with the law and enhanced. Like, if you do it with more than one person, block a uh, abortion clinic, it's somehow a conspiracy. And what did they do? They made a ultra-federal case out of it. And those two ladies who were arrested and convicted face 11 years in jail, $350,000 fine. Meanwhile, in Delaware, just a few miles away, did you see the guy who um, broke the head, literally, of the man who ran the, um, uh, what do you call it, jewelry store? He beat him so bad. He paralyzed him. This also happened a couple of years ago. Well, a jury, I'm looking at the security uh, footage right here. It is open and shut. He did it. It's right there. Um, I, I would imagine that you take a plea, but hey, he took his chance with the jury. And so far, Calvin Ushery is his name. Uh, he's, he's winning this, this little, this little plan may work. The jury could not reach consensus. So it's a hung jury. And this guy may walk. Have you seen it online? He goes, I'd like to see that watch, please. And then as the jeweler opens the case, guy grabs him, starts pummeling his head, twists his neck. That man is paralyzed. The guy got his jewels. And now, so far, has not been convicted. May walk. Give me a moment, please.
5: Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups.
1: Greg Kelly, on the Red Apple Podcast
0: Network. So, um, you know, when you go to the gas station, they have diesel as an option, right? I never could figure out diesel. The only thing I know about diesel, knew about diesel, was that trucks, the truck drivers take diesel. And I think it's cheaper. I've never given much thought to diesel beyond that. Did you know diesel is a person? Diesel. Uh, He was actually, there's a guy named Rudolph Diesel. He invented the diesel engine. Look, there's a new book. It's fabulous, it looks like to me. The Mysterious Case of Rudolf Diesel, Genius, Power, and Deception on the Eve of World War One, by Douglas Brunt, the best-selling author and the best author, Trophy Son, one of my favorite books. Douglas Brunt, welcome to uh, the radio show. How are you? Greg, it's great. It's great. So fun to be here with you. Uh, Congratulations on the book about diesel. I mean, you heard what I say. I don't think anybody out there, very few people know that there's a diesel person.
6: Yeah, you know, when you get into the book, you learn the reason why the history of the man has been paved over. And some of the reviews have called it the greatest caper of the 20th century. So there is a whole mystery and investigation that unfolds in the book.
0: Well, the uh, reviews are very, very positive. People are liking this book. They're praising your your writing of it. Um, what is diesel? First of all, just before we get into the book, what is what is diesel as we understand it today?
6: Well, that, that's actually a great way to get into it because it's how I got into the story myself. I bought this old boat about eight years ago, and I was going to fix it up. It was a larger boat, and it needed some work. And I was talking to the guy in the boat, you know, what should I do for this boat? And he said, well, you know, a boat like this, you ought to repower it to diesels. And I am like probably most of your listeners didn't know there was any difference. I, I thought of it as like, well, it's a different fuel, but maybe, you know, for same engines. I didn't realize it was a whole different thing. And he launched into this reason that a 100% of boat fires come from gasoline engines. Zero from diesel. The fuel is stable. You can drop a lit match into a barrel of diesel fuel. Nothing will happen. It's not flammable. You get four times the range. On my 200-gallon tank, I'll be able to go four times as far. And so for all these reasons, I repowered it to diesel. And then a couple years later, was zinging around the Internet looking for ideas for the next novel. As you know, I've written fiction in the past. This is nonfiction. And I came across this list of mysterious disappearances at sea about Rudolph Diesel disappearing from the world in 1913. And it's hard for people to imagine... Because we don't really know the name. It's been scrubbed from history. But in 1913, he was a huge celebrity. It was like Elon Musk disappearing today. That is so wild. Rudolf Diesel. By the way, it doesn't explode. It doesn't explode. It explodes only under high pressure. So it doesn't light with a match. It doesn't use spark ignition the way that gasoline engines do, which is why it was safer. It became the only option for submarines and U-boats back in in 1913, which is why he was such, uh, so in demand at the time of this, you know, militarism and nationalism and naval arms races. It's wild. We've heard of Thomas Edison, Alexander Graham Bell, not Rudolf Diesel. All right. So where does he come from? Well, his he, Germanic origins, but his parents emigrated from Germany to Paris in 1850. He was born in Paris in 1858, spent the first 12 years of his life there. And, uh I mean, I guess he was a whiz kid or something like that? He kind of was a whiz kid. He was recognized as having a, an exceptional brain. But in 1870, when he was 12, the Franco-Prussian War broke out. So anyone of Germanic descent living in Paris was kicked out. So there are riots and looting and mobs in the streets. He and his family run penniless from Paris. His dad was a bookbinder, basically worked with leather goods and things. So they flee Paris penniless. Their refugees go to London, which is right you know, in 1870, it's in the guts of the Industrial Revolution. They actually moved to the neighborhood in London where the setting of Oliver Twist's is. So and he arrives at the at the same age as the title character. So he's the age of Oliver Twist and Dickens's, you know, smoke and factories and terrible tenement housing living there for nine months in London. So, uh,
0: yeah, that was like slums and horror shows and uh, yeah. just a bad scene. All right, so he goes to school, how does he get around to uh, developing this 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 engine?
6: Gets a lifeline from a distant relative to go study in Augsburg, Germany, which is really the hotbed of the, you know, the industrial revolution kind of started in France and England, but Germany after the Franco-Prussian War through the later parts of the 19th century becomes a real industry hotbed, and he, you know, his big brain takes mm-hmm. over by, you know, the 1880s he's inhabiting the revered circles of German engineers. Studies under Carl von Lind, who's a professor uh, and pioneer of refrigeration, and uh, by 1892 has his patent and is developing a prototype of the engine.
0: Now, quick time out. Um, where do you go to get all this information? I mean, um, the library. Were you spending a lot of time in the library, the actual
6: library? How did you how did how did you do the research? Well, you know, a lot of it can be what I would call library research. There are so many old newspapers and documents that have been scanned. And so you can go into these databases and do keyword searches. But there are incredible archives over in Germany, some in France, some in Great Britain, and some even here in the U.S. because the way the licensing scheme worked in that era is you would license the rights to market and manufacture the diesel engine by national territory. And the person who took the exclusive license for the diesel engine here in North America was Adolphus Busch, the founder of Anheuser-Busch. So he used the diesel engine to pump water in his breweries and power refrigeration, But he also had a separate business that was building diesels for submarines for the U.S. Navy. So the the cast of characters in the book is insane. It's this crazy Gilded Age era story.
0: When you're researching, does it ever get lonely?
6: Yes, except I love it. You You find little nuggets of information that outside the context of the story would be meaningless. Someone would just pass right by it. But knowing the diesel story, and I know more about Rudolph Diesel now, I would say, than anyone on the planet You'd find some documents saying, you know, Diesel said this two days before Winston Churchill said that. And, and Churchill has a huge role in the story. Uh, and it's gold. You know, it's like the nerd side of Indiana Jones. You know, it's not the whip and the rolling boulders and things like that. It's like the geeky academic side of Indiana Jones. We find stuff that's just treasure. Hold on. Where is what is diesel gas? What is the diesel? What is what what substance is that stuff? Well that that is a great question because today it born it burns petro diesel, just another form distilled out of crude oil and petroleum. Um but his initial vision was that it could burn a range of fuels. It could burn vegetable oil, nut oil, it could burn coal tar. He won the nineteen hundred Paris World's Fair on a diesel engine running nut oil. And that was his idea that he could defeat the the American fuel monopolies. And so diesel on September 29, 1913, he was traveling from Belgium to Great Britain on an overnight passenger ferry, one of those old steam ship passenger ferries. And in the night, he disappears. He had he had dinner with his friends allegedly. In the morning, they were ready to meet for breakfast. They go to have breakfast in the morning before they disembark in Great Britain, and he's gone. All they find is his hat and his coat folded at the stern of his ship by the rail, seeming to mark where he left. Uh, you know, jumped overboard. So people thought suicide, but newspaper headlines around the world, like I said, he was the Elon Musk of the time. So, front page of the New York Times, front page of the papers in Western Europe and Russia are all about the disappearance. And two theories of murder emerged. One that he was murdered either by Kaiser Wilhelm, the Emperor of Germany, or that he was murdered by John Rockefeller because he represented, and we can get into the motivations of why, but he represented an existential threat to both.
0: Uh, all right. First off, was he, was there anything going on in his personal life? And let's talk about him as a person. Rudolf Diesel, was he married? Did he like to gamble? Uh, you know, did he have any, what were his hobbies?
6: Well, you know, in those days, engineers felt an obligation to be both engineer and social theorist to explore how their innovations could be applied to society for the betterment of society. So he was, in general, a, a peaceful guy, though he recognized a strong military was important for the defense of a nation because his life really was bookended by European wars. You know, he, he disappeared just on the eve of World War One, And uh, it was a time of social Darwinism where people felt that, he, he did not feel this way, but social Darwinists felt that it was not only okay to invade a weaker neighbor, it was a moral obligation to do so, that society should advance in the way that biology has advanced, that it's survival of the fittest. So if you're stronger than those guys, you should go invade them and take them over and make them more like you. So he, he did not believe that. It was more peaceful. Um, he had French, English, German, Slavic background, so he considered himself more of a citizen of the world, you know, which was a counter to this highly nationalistic period in history. Um, and he was a romantic, he was kind of a poet, you know, his, his mother was a governess who taught him a love of music and culture and the arts. And his letters to his wife are really charming. You really get to know, he, he leaps off the page as this three-dimensional figure that you kind of fall in love with, but he he was married with three children, good family man, very hard worker, um, but also a capitalist. And he, he wanted to make a buck off this invention too.
0: And you got to read his Personal letters, love letters. I read his
6: love letters. I Talks mean, about
0: French lingerie in there. Whoa! Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, someday they'll be reading our text messages, I guess. So, alright, he makes this incredible engine. Um, it, it's, uh, you know, there's a demand for it. Rockefeller, I presume, is threatened by this.
6: Yes, Rockefeller, it was at a very precarious time in the early 1900s because Standard Oil was founded in 1870, and by 1900, Rockefeller was the richest man in the world. He'd made all his money off kerosene for illumination. He was in the lighting business in the first 30 years and what made him the richest man in the world. Gasoline was a wasteful byproduct that was a nuisance that they would throw away. In 1905, it was not settled that the 20th century would be dominated by petroleum and gasoline. And in fact, in 1905, in New York City, there was a taxi fleet of hundreds of cars that were all electric cars. And there was a charging station on Broadway in Times Square. So now we think of Elon Musk creating these newfangled electric cars. Well, no, that was going on 120 years ago. Huh. And diesel – so so Rockefeller's trying to find – as kerosene gets wiped out by the electric light bulb at the turn of the century. So, you know, Standard Oil had wiped out the whaling industry and using whale blubber for illumination. Then we use kerosene. But now the electric light bulb is here by 1900, and Standard Oil needs a new market. They need the combustion engine – but diesel represents an engine that doesn't need petroleum or gasoline. He's saying we can use vegetable oil. And to this day, diesel can do that. Willie Nelson, 15 years ago, was driving around on his tour in a diesel-powered tour bus running on recycled kitchen grease, basically vegetable oil. And he's saying we don't need to run around fighting wars for petroleum out of, you know, places in the world that have it, we can grow our own fuel, which is what diesel was saying 120 years ago.
0: So the competitive uh, forces that were working against him back then, are they still working against the diesel industry today
6: in some form? Well, in some form, yeah, I, because, you know, the infrastructure required to grow enough corn or nuts or whatever you're going to use to then refine into an oil would be huge. And gasoline and and petroleum are are offered in a way that makes that business case very tough to make. And so as an example, back in the kerosene era of the standard oil history, Rockefeller went into China and he gave away all these kerosene lamps, these fancy new kerosene lamps for free. Because in China, they had traditionally been using gas, natural gas, or oils for illumination. And he says, here's this free, beautiful new kerosene lamp, and then here's some really inexpensive kerosene to light it with. And so everyone starts using kerosene lamps. Well, they once you've got China addicted to it, The price goes up. You know, he's, he's got his, uh, his market held captive. And so he used those same kind of manipulations by controlling the supply so much, he can influence the form of demand.
0: Well, you know what I like also? The book has pictures. All right. (laughs) Not all books have pictures. We can see what he looks like. We can see what life was like during that era. Um, let's just time out for a moment. Reading a book, just sitting down and reading a book. I think we're doing less and less of that, but I think it's also more and more important my eyes are going crazy with the screens. Do you agree? I think it's like, it's so imperative that people read more, discover what a book is like. And it's not for the elites. It's for everybody. Anybody yeah. who can read can read a book. Uh Does that resonate with you? I just feel like it's One, such a, yeah, 100%. Uh,
6: I would say, you know, as a, as a quick addition, I like read some good history too, because history is such a, a great perspective setter for the present day. Everyone's sort of can get hysterical saying, Oh my gosh, it's never been worse. It's like, actually, you know, there are times when it has been worse. Yeah. So history is a good perspective setter, but I also agree with just reading books generally, fiction, nonfiction, whatever. And the best way to treat it is at least an hour. You know, you can't, I, I sometimes read at night too, and I, I make it through like a paragraph before I'm completely gone, but it, try to carve out an hour. I, I try to carve out three. That is really the best way to treat a book and really get into it and enjoy it. Audible is making a comeback too, you know, so that's, that's also great. Audiobooks are are also fine. I, I, I find there's no substitute for like holding the book um, but either is great and try to do it, you know, for at least a chunk of time where you can really get into it and get some momentum.
0: Yeah. You don't have to do three hours a day, but on a weekend, on vacation, whatever Uh, your method for writing. We talked about the
6: research, but when you, when it's time to sit down and write, um, how and where did you do that? Usually in the morning, my, my, Method for fiction and nonfiction is a little different. With fiction, I've written by hand on legal pads. But with nonfiction, I really need to have my stacks of research around me. I need to be in a certain place. Whereas fiction, I could do it on a train or a Uber or whatever. With nonfiction, I need to be at my desk. I've got all my research around me. I'm keying it in, usually right in the morning. Um, and, you know, I try to get through it. It's not like a full sprint to the finish line, but I try to get pretty far into it before I go back and get big feedback on it. You did the other ones on a legal pad, just writing it out? Fiction, yeah. I I have an outline written by hand, and then my first draft is – I because I'm a terrible typist. I'm like a hunt and peck guy. I type with about three fingers per hand, and I'm very slow as a typist. So then once I've written it out, though, I do – and our friend, you know, Nelson DeMille is the same way. He writes with a pencil on legal pads. But I once I have it written out by hand, then I'll type it in. And that's actually a, a useful step, too, because then I can sort of – comb the hair out a little bit as I type it in.
0: Doug Brunt, the name of the book is The Mysterious Case of Rudolf Diesel, Genius Power and Deception on the Eve of World War One." Listen, you mind talking a little bit of politics when we come back? Sure. All right. You don't mind? I'm yeah, in. yeah. 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 I'm yeah. in. Throw the kitchen right. sink at me. Um, it's a, it's a great book. And you know what? It feels good to have a book in my hand. Uh, do yourself a <laughs> favor. Really. Um, thank you, Doug. We'll be right back.
1: Greg Kelly, Kelly on the Red Apple Podcast Network.
0: All right, we're back. A special treat. We have the author Douglas Brunt in-house. His new book, The Mysterious Case of Rudolf Diesel, Genius Power and Deception on the Eve of World War One." all about this guy Diesel who invented the diesel engine. Who knew? We, <laughs> we should all know, right? Look, you write beautifully. You know the subject cold. How did you get so – where did you go to school? Uh, college
6: at Duke. What would you major in? Poli-sci. poli When did you decide you wanted to be a writer? Gosh, I mean, that was, uh, I had already met you. I used to run this uh, security company, a, a tech security company, and I was traveling around the world and had a very dysfunctional board. There are there a lot of reasons why I was getting pretty ground down, but was married, had second kid, just arrived, and I remember walking with my wife in Central Park, just, my gosh, you're grouchy and short-tempered, like, what's, and I'm like, work is killing me, and, At that time, I had uh, just read The Gold Coast by our mutual friend Nelson DeMille, and when I finished that book, I had this feeling of, I want to make people feel the way this book made me feel. So I really had no training. I didn't have an MFA or any real studies in creative writing, but had a love of literature a lifelong love of literature i was always sort of the the nerdy kid as a, a little guy you know down at the beach when it's a sunny day that was you know i love that stuff too but when it rained at the beach i was the one happy kid because i'd go to the library and read all day like that was great oh. so i started to draft a first novel and uh that was back in like 2010 and anyway got an agent got a book deal first novel came out in 2012 and haven't looked back
0: i love it nelson DeMille, garden city long island my hometown yeah. great man and that woman you were walking with in Central Park, uh, your wife happens to be Megan Kelly, the Megan Kelly. Um, and you guys have been married how long?
6: Uh, let's see, we got married in 08, so we are 15 years. Wow. Uh, and you're raising. Well, that uh... was math on the spot, I did. <laughs> so we should note that. <laughs> Everybody's got to take a minute.
0: Hell, I got to figure out when I was at the date of the marriage. I always i have to think for it was November 11th or November 12th. November 12th. That's how
6: long it takes me each time. Uh, I've got an easy one. March one. I can, oh, I've got that one.
0: So March one. All right. Now you're raising three kids. How do you guys, I mean, and Megan has obviously been, you know, a great kind of leader in this pushback against woke, but your kids are in school and this woke stuff is everywhere. Um, what do you make of the moment? I mean, how bad is it in America, in your opinion? It certainly wasn't woke back in, uh, Mr. Diesel's day.
6: No, definitely not. And, uh, you know, Adolphus Bush, a character in in the, in the book here of this sort of gilded age era would probably be rolling over seeing what's, what's happening with the brand these days. Um, you know, every once in a while I feel like I see something that indicates the pendulum is coming back down to the middle and I feel encouraged. I feel encouraged that at least people are, you know, have some cover to speak out and speak their minds. Whereas I think four years ago, a parent in a school that had really kind of gone around the bend on some of the gender and identity politics stuff, people were scared to talk. You know, you'd only talk outside the school building. But now parent groups will talk to the administration about it. So that that alone is not the administration's doing anything about what the parents are yeah. complaining about in many cases. But at least the parents have the courage and feel they have the cover because it's now talked about more in the media to say something. And if we read this book, I would imagine, um, we're not going to talk about what people look
0: like, race, identity, things like that. That seems to be all anybody talks about or thinks, at least publicly. And they say different things in private. Vivek, Vivek, have you met Vivek yet? Vivek I, Ramaswamy? I have not. I have not uh, met him. Is, uh, do you think Megan might have him on? Uh, I don't know. I'm intrigued by him. I'm intrigued. You know, she's
6: talking to all the candidates. As you know, she just had a terrific interview with, with, uh, Donald Trump. She's talked to, DeSantis, you know, she'll, she'll, she'll talk to all candidates. Can I just say this about the 2016 interview? I'm
0: sorry, the 2015 debate. I thought that was an awesome moment, both for Megan and for President Trump. And they talked about it last week. Um, you know, the, uh, the Rosie O'Donnell answer, the, mm. the women are pigs question and the Rosie O'Donnell <laughs> answer. I just thought it was perfect. It was a perfect moment for both Megan and Donald Trump. And I think Megan might see it the same way.
6: Well, I, you know, that, that's a complicated one. It, it was a big moment for sure. Um, the the subsequent months, there was a lot of incoming uh, toward her, and and so that it was definitely stressful. Uh, you know, I, I think she has complicated feelings on it, but it was certainly one of the big moments in debate history, really.
0: Yeah. No, it's right up there with Mr. President, uh you're no Jack Kennedy. Right. <laughs> that's lame in comparison. Right. Let's face it. That is that's, the That's so G rated.
6: I <laughs> don't right.
0: Wow, that really got hot. Uh well, Douglas Brunt, you're a prince and I appreciate it so much you coming in. The mysterious case of Rudolph Diesel, uh available wherever books are sold. We appreciate it so much. Thank Greg, you. Greg, thank you so much. Thank you. To be continued, we'll be right back.
1: Kelly, on the Red Apple Podcast Network.
0: Well, that was really cool having that guy on. I like him a lot. Doug Brunt and that book, The Mysterious Case of Rudolf Diesel. Um, it's been a long time, excuse me, since I read a book. I think it was sometime. No, well, it wasn't that long. It was a year ago. You know what I read? Crime and Punishment of All Things uh, by Dostoevsky or Fyodor, whatever his name. I couldn't believe how good it was. I could not believe how good this book was. You know, it just sounded so dreary. It just sounded like this big tome that they would make you read. It was a total page turner. You're gripped. It's got so much going on. And, um, yeah, if you, uh, you know, if you don't pick up a classic, you know, they're, they're classics for a reason. They're awesome. Um, they are, they are great. Hey, uh, shout out to the people of Staten Island who stood in front of that bus, uh, full of the illegal migrants. Um, you know they just stood in front of the bus no you can't come any further you stop right here you can't go to that uh senior center in the middle of a neighborhood which uh, is not designed for people like you what do, what do I mean people like you um non-citizens who broke the law coming to this country we have no idea who they are what their allegiance is okay uh that that's who that's who you don't you don't belong here all right you come here the right way the right way there is a method to do it all right love it love it come here legally uh you can't do it this way who are they why are they in the proximity to children i love what these guys did on staten island stood in front of that bus and there should be more of that going on um and that might even work you know these these people they're hailed by the left who sit down on highways to (laughs) they're upset about climate change right and they're gonna you know just bother some guy on his way to work no this is not symbolic this is real this is, we don't want this bus with these 35 people on it to come any further. Joe Biden is so impeachable right now. Something really evil is happening. You know, um Louis C.K., you know that guy, the comedian who I used to like, now he's out there saying, yeah, no, it's good that these people are coming across the border because it's good that they're bringing problems to America. We should, we should <laughs> Just got sk- <laughs> Come here. I just got the, 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 the that was uh, Ray Kelly just walked in the room. Former police commissioner, those headphones, sir. Have a, have a seat uh, if you don't mind. Um, this is, we've talked, you've been on this show many times, but never in person. Have a seat. There's the microphone. How are you?
7: <laughs> I am fine. Except for the traffic. It is just, it, actually, I heard you say this before. It's a little better today than it was yesterday.
0: I'm not wrong, right? No, you're you're always right. <laughs> Someone we sure you before. Um, so, what brings you to what brings you to the studio? Well, we have some business that
7: uh, we have to talk to the boss about. But uh, it doesn't
0: involve me. It does I, not. Phew. <laughs> <She went. laughs> Thank you. I hope it doesn't. <laughs> no. Uh, well, anyway, welcome to the uh, the the situation here. Look, so what were we just talking about? Oh, the buses that went on to Staten Island and the people stood in front of the buses. You know, I've seen protests. A lot of them seem pointless. You know, we're going to stop this vehicle because we don't like climate uh, change. We're going to stop this bus because we're upset about this or that or the other thing. But this is a real thing. There are illegal migrants on that bus and they're bringing them to a uh, facility in a residential neighborhood where they don't belong. I kind of think that that is okay. Um. I guess you can't say that's okay.
7: I, I, no, I certainly think it's okay. It's
0: an outrage
7: how this whole situation has developed. You, you know, we, we have over whatever it is, a hundred thousand now in this in the city with no end in sight, no plan of any sort. I mean, it's, it's incredible, incredible that New York City has allowed this city, this situation, to fester.
0: It didn't have to happen. I mean, look. Biden is, um, and the Democrats and the left, they want all these uh, illegal people here. They think ultimately they'll be able to represent how they vote. Um, How could New York City have uh, prevented all of this? They did not have to come here. I think Adams antagonized Texas deliberately and talked about us being a sanctuary city and all that stuff.
7: Look, eventually, I think it has to get to court in some way, shape, or form. This whole notion... Of New York City guaranteeing uh, a bed for anyone who shows up here is uh, ludicrous in this situation. you should stop that policy and I should go to court. <laughs> and you tell me what judge is going to say that that program should last ad infinitum without any, uh, ending in sight. It's, it's incredible. You got to get this, I think, somehow into, uh, into court. Uh, but it doesn't look like the, the city is willing to take that stand.
0: And we had a lot of problems in this city before the migrants showed up. Uh, the lawlessness, and I don't know if you've noticed it. We haven't talked about this actually, but marijuana smoke, the smell, the aroma of marijuana. You know, you used to smell it maybe on a Friday night and be like, ooh, who's got that? But now it's on a Tuesday morning, a Wednesday, it's everywhere, everywhere. I just, I just smelled it right downstairs here on the street. Uh, so yeah.
7: It is uh, it is ubiquitous, as they used to say.
0: Now, all right, you can't lock up everybody for having a joint, I guess, right? No, well, it's not against the law. It's not against the law.
7: Yeah, it's in the city fathers and the wisdom, and in other states as well, have made it basically legal to have uh, to have
0: pot. What do you think that could lead to? What does it lead to?
7: Well, first of all, we know that the marijuana in circulation these days is much stronger than it was, uh, let's say 10 years ago. So, and we don't know the ramifications of this long-term use of uh, marijuana. Paranoia is certainly one, something that, that people uh, talk about. We don't know what are the physical, uh, impact it, it will have. Uh, so it's, it's just, and it's the number one complaint that people have through the three one one system. Yeah, that's what they complain about: people smoking marijuana on the streets, smoking it in, in their hallways, and uh, on the uh, street corners. So it's 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 something that the public, in, in general, I think, has a, a mixed a mixed mind about. That it's not it's something that uh, is, is easily accepted by the majority of people.
0: I try to avoid the subway, uh, but when I do take it, uh, some, if it's raining or something like that, you know, I don't, I, I tell people, if you can afford it, don't take the subway. I see, um, every time any, like, I don't know, maybe a third of the people going through the turnstile are not going through the turnstile. They're just jumping. It. They're just jumping it, not paying the fare that I think is illegal, but I guess it's kind of, De facto, not illegal anymore.
7: Well, I think you can get a summons for it. I think the reality is that people don't pay any attention to summonses. They're not uh, seen as a deterrent. Uh, When the police department was uh, making arrests for fair evasion, uh, it also produced a lot of information about people committing other crimes or had committed other crimes They had warrants. Uh, on them, and now that is uh, kind of catches catch can. Mm. All uh, right. So it's it's you know it just is a problem as far as the, the MTA is concerned. They're saying it costs
0: them six hundred million
7: dollars a year
0: of the people not paying the fare. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. All right, that's all depressing. Let's talk about something good. Uh, you went, Annalise. From- Annalise, my daughter Annalise. Yeah, she's three. She loves you. And, uh, I picked her up. I dropped her off and picked her up from, uh, school today, uh, the, the morning session. So you went from being, uh, you know, a cop, one of, uh, how many people were in your police academy class? Uh, my police academy class was about 1800. 1800. One of 1800. Oh, by the way, you graduated number one from that class. We got the picture on the wall. You got the big trophy from the police commissioner. You go from, uh, police cadet to commissioner and, um, let me just ask you this: Is there a secret to your success? Like, you know, you went from the the very the very bottom, if you will, not that it's the bottom, not in a negative sense, but you know, regular cop to commissioner. How did you do it? Well, anybody who
7: says that luck does not play a major role in his success is just, is is lying to them themselves I was fortunate to be at the right time the right place I also went to law school when I was in uh, in the, the police department when I was a uh, police officer and a sergeant and uh, the fact that I was a lawyer at a time when there weren't that many lawyers in the police department there were some but not nearly as many as there are now I think that was, uh, was helpful um, I had uh, I also went to graduate law school, that helped me, with, you know, sort of raise your profile. So, I uh, I like to think I worked hard. Obviously, that that played a role in uh, in any success that that people have. But uh, I, I just feel very very fortunate and had the the career that I had. The police department is still a great institution. It's a nurturing organization. You know, we always say I was in the federal government too. You see a retirement. For someone in the federal government who had been there for thirty years, and you'd see maybe twenty-five people at the retirement party. NYPD, you'll have a, a sergeant retire. We have two hundred <laughs> and fifty, three hundred people at at the event. It is a, it, it, there's a great bonding that takes place when you're part of the organization, <clears throat> and, and it was very good to
0: me. Well, back to the hard work part. There's something you said. And I don't know if you're not. You're probably not the first one to say it, but something about the extra mile, going the extra mile. What's 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 that? What's that about the extra mile? Oh, that's. Uh, I think it was Wayne Dyer who said that. It's never,
7: it's never crowded on the extra mile. You know, you got to put it, that extra effort in, and it it, it pays off. So uh, I I believe in that. All uh, right, it worked for me.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I can attest, you were a very hard worker, I saw it first hand, I saw it first hand. Um, all right, now how are you going to get home? <laughs> Wait, it doesn't look that bad, so uh is this, let me ask you finally, this UN stuff, all these vehicles, I saw the presidential motorcade, it had to be, it had to be a thousand vehicles long. I mean, it was just, I don't know if they need, do they need all this stuff, these trucks, I think no, they, they don't, no, they don't, they, they don't. don't.
7: You know, and I tried to, I was the Undersecretary of Enforcement in the Treasury Department and Secret Service reported to me. Uh, I tried to cut it down because there was 25 cars with the president, this is President Clinton, moving from the White House to the Capitol and back. And then they, then they would stop, they blocked the traffic like 20 minutes before the entourage moved. So I I tried to uh cut it back, but I, I couldn't do it. Secret Service had uh, uh, too much clout in those days, and I assume it still does. Uh, But, no, they're not all needed. The doctor has a car. The photographer has a car. Uh, You know, all sorts of security people, uh, response teams are in in the cars. Now, some of it is needed, yes. Some of it, you want to get that information out there. That is a deterrent. But, no, You you don't need 25 cars. You said you saw 40 cars. And then also, what you have here is you have the heads of state from other countries who come here with their own security details. Some of them are armed. Uh, yeah, it, it takes an awful lot of coordination and uh, a lot of effort to <laughs> to get this week uh, underway. You know, and to to get it, uh, it's basically one for a week. It goes it goes longer than that, but it, the
0: principles are not here. But it, it, it's very, very complex. I could have sworn I saw a cement truck in the motorcade. I yeah. mean, they're just uh, these outlandish vehicles.
7: Well, well, I think you might be talking about a sanitation truck that has sand in it uh, that they block off streets with, that they block it off down by the U.N., Uh
0: unless you're talking about something No, else. there was something. It was a big uh, the contraption they had on the back, which looked like a cement uh, thing, a drum that's going round and round and round. Well, listen. um Pleasure to have you. Thank you. Nice, uh, thanks for having me. Just stopping by. Okay, Ray Kelly. In the neighborhood, Ray Kelly. Everybody, my father. Thank you very much. And we'll be right back.
1: Greg Kelly on the Red Apple
0: Podcast Network. Hey, why is Samantha B on television? Anybody remember Samantha B? Uh, she was nice at one point in her life and then she got that Samantha B show. Is that still on TV? I think it got canceled. Here's what bothered me about the Samantha B show. B, Bee, B-E-E. Before this sh- show came on, she was going to be the first late night, uh, talk show hosted by a woman, which I don't know if that's actually true. I mean, it was on like, Comedy Central Streaming Plus. It wasn't like a main network or anything like that. But the New York Times did about seven articles about that show before it even uh, debuted. And it was really on my mind because, uh, uh you know, Willie Geist, that guy on the Today Show or uh, MSNBC. I'm sorry, but he is as bland as they come. I mean, the only thing interesting about Willie Geist, at least is what he's letting out, putting out on that show, Is, uh, the name Willie. Willie's a little bit of an edgy name, right? But other than that, it's very, he's a very, very dull. They did two articles on his silly podcast. The New York, meanwhile, I'm hosting the Good Day New York show with Rosanna. We're killing it. We're beating NBC. We're beating CBS. We're beating, uh, Good Morning America on ABC and they won't write about us. They won't say a damn thing, right? Um, why could it have had something to do with Fox? I don't know. Could it have something to do with me? Could it have been me? I don't know. But um, what are you going to do? Uh, publicity, nobody even remembers it anyway. It doesn't matter. But it was kind of got under my uh, skin a little bit. Oh, Greg is on the phone. Don't get too many Gregs calling the show. Yes, Greg. Hi, Greg. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I, You know, I, I really just wanted to make a comment about an earlier comment made by uh, Bill O'Reilly. He said that In Joe Biden's head, he really thinks he's doing the right thing for the country. You know, it it was
8: really in response to his U.N. statement, which was pathetic. It paints us in a horrible light. I mean, the guy is just, I mean, again, you know, it's insane that he's even our president to begin with. But then to think that in his head, he actually thinks he's doing some good for the country.
9: All All the things that he's doing, you know, all the money that he's robbing and stealing, the money that he's sending to his family, all the offshore accounts, I mean, he, he, how can anybody think that he thinks he's
0: doing the right thing? Well, I mean, it's look, Bill O'Reilly has an opinion. We really can't know what the hell's going on in uh, in Joe Biden's head. We don't know, not much. I'll say that not much is going on up there. You know, corrupt people often convince themselves that they're not corrupt. You know, that somehow, um, you know, it's okay to cut this corner, and I'm I'm doing it for the larger good, or something like that. So, you know, Bill O'Reilly, uh, that's his opinion, and, you know, that's fine. I mean, like, you you can say that. thats I, w- I wouldn't say that that's an illegitimate opinion. He doesn't know. I can't say what the hell's going on in this head. So, uh, you know, Greg, you know? Yeah, fair, you're right. Fair okay. enough, right? I mean, you know, I mean, anyway, I appreciate it. Is it 1G or 2? As 1, G-R-E-G. Yeah, I never know. Everyone asks me every time, is it 1G or 2, 1G or 2? And, uh, I've never met anybody who spells it with two G's, but they always ask one G. And here I am asking you. Sorry about that. Uh, let's try Drake in the Bronx. Hello.
8: Good afternoon. How are you doing? Good. That's good. Hey, um, I was just kind of curious. Being a more political Hey uh,
0: Drake, hey Drake. I'm sorry. There's the music. I'm going to put you on pause just for a little bit. All right, I'm going to put you on hold. Stick around. I got a couple of things to do after the break, and then we'll get back to you, Drake. Any relation to the uh, the guy from Canada?
1: Greg Kelly, on the Red Apple Podcast Network.
0: No, oh, yes, I'm back. Um, hey, here's something. Ooh. Cindy Crawford is dishing on Richard Gere. Wow. Uh, why the hell would that? Oh, they were married? Cindy Crawford and Richard Gere. Man, haven't thought about them in a long time. Um, she opened up in a new documentary. And um, is she bad-mouthing him? Um, mm, indirectly, it looks like. Uh, maybe, maybe not. She was a bit... You know, we don't have supermodels anymore. Notice that? Name one big model right now. Who's the biggest model in the world? Seriously, who? Do I it. can only think of Heidi Klum. Yeah, but she retired like 20 years ago, right? She was like, you know, she, she became a reality TV star. She's also like 60 years old. So she's not an actually a working model anymore. She, uh, we don't have supermodels anymore. And you know why? They were replaced by celebrities. They were replaced by Kim Kardashian. They were replaced by, yeah, they just realized anonymous, beautiful women did not do as well as, uh, you know, not exactly perfect-looking women, but, um, you know, pe- women or men that people knew, because you don't know the names of the models. Even back then, And then became a thing. For a long time, we didn't know. Who was the first supermodel, super-duper model? Twiggy. I think there was this really skinny blonde lady named Twiggy, and then there was Cheryl Teagues. I think she was possibly the big, and then the 80s exploded. We had Paulina. We had... Naomi Campbell, we had, uh, Chrissy Turlington, we had Cindy Crawford, we had, uh, Linda Evangelista, we had Helena Christensen, something like that. Um, anyway, the modeling industry is, uh, I'm told it's not all that. It's not all that. That's what I hear. All right. Um, that hearing, they're still, they're still busting his chops and he absolutely deserves it. Merrick Garland. Um, but I want to, I want to share with you this. Keep an eye on Congressman Michael Lawler, 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 right? Mike Lawler. He's relatively new. Uh, I think he just got there. This is his first term, right? But he's emerging as a leader and a sharp guy. Now, he's not crazy about Trump, and I'm not crazy about him not being crazy about Trump, but another stuff, he's pretty good. Cut 19, please. Cut 19. Chuck Schumer,
10: the Senate Majority Leader of New York State. From New York State, doing absolutely nothing. Silent. What happened to those Sunday press conferences? And Chuck Schumer needs to get off his behind and do something. He represents New York State. Silence. It's unacceptable. And Governor Hochul needs to stand up to Mayor Adams and protect counties outside the city of New York. Yeah, kick his ass. Cut 20. The southern border has been overrun, and these communities cannot handle it. And so Mayor Adams and Governor Hochul, in their infinite wisdom, and the Democratic politicians in New York and New York City believe that we should be a sanctuary city and sanctuary state. They believe we should not cooperate with ICE or law enforcement officials. And they have used taxpayer funds to provide free housing, free health care, free education, free food, free clothing, with no accountability. And so what happens? We now have had over a hundred thousand migrants come to New York City in just the last year.
0: All right. Well, Congressman lawyer, I shouldn't say kick ass anymore, right? I won't do that. Uh Drake, back to you, my friend in the Bronx. Yes, sir.
8: I was just kind of curious that you could tell me what possibly have the Democrats done for black people since that to the bulk of their their party as uh, that votes on them.
0: Well, look, speaking broadly, um, very broadly here, and before I Speak broadly, I'll just say this. I don't think we should really look to the government to do much of anything in our lives. You know, I mean, I want the government to take care of the streets. I want the government to uh, you know, take care of the border, uh, a military, you know, a navy, stuff like that. But the idea that, you know, I'm going to go to some federal office and my life is going to get better, I, I'm not I, I hope I'm never in the position where I I need the government. I just you're going to be let down and There's this idea that they're supposed to do things for us. And I don't know. Now, look, if you go back to the 1950s and you look at the status of the family in America, and it was almost unheard of for there to be a a father missing, you know, in a family, you know, maybe if he was killed in war or something like that or died, but to just have no father in the family was incredibly unusual across the board. Um, in white families, black families, right? And then that changed radically uh, with the great society, Lyndon Johnson. They pushed all kinds of money into the cities, and they, I believe, disincentivized uh, fatherhood. They actually made it more profitable profitable to raise children without a father and uh, welfare. And they did so many things, I think, that undermined black men. And um, it was anti-family. So I don't think the Democrats are uh, a friend to, um, <laughs> you know, what what, what, is, what does Mark Levin say? The uh, Democrat Party hates America. I, I underscore exclamation point. By the way, we should all buy Mark Levin's book. You hear him every night. Just a great, great American. So smart. So inspiring. So entertaining. Drake, uh, what's your answer to that question?
8: Um, I can speak to what you just mentioned, because I remember at five years old one time that um, there was a um, welfare uh, agent coming to back to do a home inspection. And I can remember my father scurrying to the, the attic so that he won't be seen in the house because he wasn't supposed to be there being that we were collecting, my mother was collecting welfare. So, uh, you know, LBJ, yeah, he definitely, uh, ruined the black neighborhood and also saying how he would have black people voting democratic for the next 200 years.
0: Well, that's pretty wild you see that first you know a lot of uh let's just be frank here a lot of white people think that this you know that's a myth that's 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 all a myth that's all something that as no you so you see it firsthand and there's not only your anecdote and uh there are others and there's data to back all this stuff up drake what do you do now
8: i actually am uh i repair a copy machine um
0: where in uh, the city
8: West Chester County, Bronx, all over. I'm everywhere.
0: You don't see copying machines as much as you used to. You know, I got to go make a copy of this. Why is that?
8: <laughs> well, because a lot of people have um, personal printers where they have near the desk and things like that. And uh, everyone has laptops where, you know. Um,
0: yeah, you just email have... email it to me. Email it to me. I don't need a copy. Just email it to me. But there's still plenty of photo, photocopiers out there to repair
8: plenty of them, hundreds, thousands of
0: them. You ever take a picture of your, uh, you ever sit on a photocopy machine like I used to do, or, you know, you put your face in there? Can you still do that? I just, I'm, that's, I'm, that's a silly question. I used to do that at the library sometimes. Um, well, anyway, Drake, thank you very much. Anything else on your mind?
8: Um, I overheard Jim Jordan one time speaking about the uh, FISA courts being that he said that they're going to be ending it, the date's going to be ending at this year, So, I, but I've never heard anyone else talking about, should we continue FISA courts, or should we let them pass away?
0: Hmm. Uh, I think he wants to reform the FISA court. That might be, and yes, it has to be renewed every now and then. The FISA court is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, I believe. And basically, is it foreign intelligence? It's a way you can get a wiretap... Um, going in secret, but you still need a judge's approval. Um I don't know exactly what the hell it is. I don't, I forgot. Why was the FISA thing? So um, why was the FISA thing? So controversial? Um Was it without a warrant? What was the deal with FISA? What was it? What was up? It was so intelligence could monitor American citizens. I think that's it, right? Yes. It's so American, it's American intelligence services could be used to monitor American citizens. And our intelligence community is not supposed to do that. It can only do it when it gets a FISA warrant. And, uh, you gotta go through all sorts of hoops to get a FISA warrant. And guess what? The FBI blows it all the time. They blow it off all the time. Did I get that right about the FISA, Jake? Yes. Thank you very much. Um, I did. All right. Uh, why the hell are Fritos in existence? Fritos has absolutely no nutritional value. They are so delicious. They are the best. I mean, they are so good, and I cannot stop eating them. Thank God there is only two very small servings of them. And you know, it's even better than the the um, uh, the the Frito is the scoop edition of the Frito. You know, scoops for dipping and stuff like that. Tony in Staten Island. Hello.
11: Hello. How are you? Good. Hello? Yeah. yeah. No, I just want to mention that you were talking to your father before. I I worked for and with your father many years ago and he was an, an excellent cop, an excellent everything he did in the police department uh, and very well respected by the people that worked for him. Uh, yeah. And uh, I just wanted to let you know that and when I retired, I I had the the privilege and honor to work with your Aunt Teresa, who was a really wonderful lady.
0: My goodness gracious, we miss Teresa so much, Aunt Teresa from Breezy Point. We do too, especially my mom, her her big sister Teresa Teresa Clark Teresa King Teresa King married Mike, uh, an amazing woman. Uh, my mom was with uh, Teresa's daughter yesterday, actually. Megan um hey can i ask you this about my dad and cuz i've heard what you've said before but what was it about him like what 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 was different about him what was special about him i mean they were why do they respect him so much
11: well he was a, an extremely hard worker and he he was a gentleman and he he didn't talk down to you he he just didn't talk down to you. In fact, I I was one of the, the people that worked for him, and I introduced him to that uh, restaurant in the 7-6 that his picture is all over the wall. I'm the first one to take him there.
0: What's the name of it?
11: You know
0: Fernando's. Oh, Fernando's. Yeah, I've been there. I've been to Fernando's too. Yeah. Uh, I haven't been there in a long time. I got to get back. So you're the man. Well, Tony, I appreciate it. Very nice. And you're right. I've seen that firsthand. He doesn't talk down to people. He, uh, and he treats people the same way. I've seen like, you know, some guy stop him on the street, some random guy, some shabby looking guy grab you know, doesn't grab him. You know what I mean? But starts off. He treats him just the way he would treat Mike Bloomberg. You know what I mean? Just everybody, uh, the same. Hey, what's going on with Howard Stern? It's Howard Stern woke now, cut 24. Listen to this. Howard Stern, the great Howard Stern. I love Howard Stern, by the way. Uh Cut 24.
9: I hear that oh, a lot, geez. that I'm, I'm not good anymore because I'm woke. I've, my whole career I've well, been Well, maybe Metamucil is woke. Stop eating it. Yeah. By the way, I kind of take that as a compliment that I'm woke. I'll tell you how I um, feel about it. To me, the opposite of woke is being asleep. And if woke means I can't get behind Trump, which is what I think it means, or that I support people who want to be transgender or I'm for the vaccine, dude, call me woke as you want. I'm not for stupidity. You know, I ran out Friday morning. I was over at CVS. Thank you, CVS. I went over there 9 a.m. and got myself that new vaccine for COVID science this country is so great but i am woke mother and i love it i want to be awake i want to read legitimate news sources here's how woke i am i believe the election was not rigged so i'm woke man i am i think that's a compliment that it
0: all right so this is getting heavy plate listen i absolutely love howard stern uh, he's so brilliant. He's revolutionized broadcasting and, uh, doesn't mean I have to agree with everything that he says. Of course not. Um, but I just have so much respect for him. I would respectfully say that that's not woke. What he's talking about actually isn't woke. You can be for the vaccine. Uh, I, I, he didn't say whether he was for mandates of the vaccine. I, look, I got vaccinated. I am definitely not woke. Woke, I think, is how do you define woke? I think it is, uh, the political correctness, like in overdrive, right? Political. I mean, he didn't mention transgender uh, uh, children. You know, I mean, the idea that transgender ideology, uh, uh, boys using girls' bathrooms, all that stuff—that's happening in in schools. I don't think anybody, any reasonable person, supports that. Um, I do, I just uh, I, I I don't think I don't I can't imagine Howard would support that. We got Christine up there in Connecticut, transgender. Uh, we love Christine, right? And she has made a hard and fast rule: no children drag queens hanging around, uh, hanging around for story story hour in, in grammar school and middle school. I'd say that's woke. I don't think Howard's for that. The stuff, and we can disagree about the election. I've got friends who say the election was on the up and up. Friends, I don't think they call themselves woke. I think the election was rigged. Uh, I think you look at Pennsylvania, you look at, oh, big time Pennsylvania and the way those votes came in and the way they blew off their own law. So anyway, I love Howard. I may disagree with him about I basically the definition of woke, the definition of woke. I would I would guess uh, I'd kick around because I'm vaccinated, although I didn't get the new one. Did I tell you about all the side effects I had from the first vaccine? Who chills? Uh, I was hallucinating. I had a fever. I was, I was miserable for about 16 hours or so. But I got it. That was my choice, all right? That doesn't make me, it certainly doesn't make me woke. And yeah, I got it again. So I got the second dose. You may disagree. That's fine. Um, But I ain't getting another one. <laughs> no way. Be right back. Greg
1: Kelly. On the Red Apple Podcast Network.
0: Yes, uh, we're back. Hey, man, that Garland guy is still going right now. I mean, we know it. All right, he's being very deceptive. Everybody's got to get there. Hey, turn it up. Can we turn it up right now? Someone's really laying into him right now. Uh, this is the uh, this is the woman. She's Ukrainian actually, and she is mad. Uh, that could be, but she's wrapping up. Maybe she's mad at mad at me. Maybe she's mad at our side. Um. A.G. Garland testifies for GOP-led House committee. It's inherently bad. All right, do it.
5: I'm relatively new to the committee, and I'm still getting my feet under me. Uh, but as far as I can tell, what we are doing here today is talking about oh. a lot of conspiracy theories. Yeah, we
0: missed it. We and missed it. It's this is a Democrat. It's, it's frustrating, frustrating to me that they only have committee. five minutes per, five minutes per. That's no way to run a hearing, no way to to run a country. It's just you got to you have to have some some momentum. Um Joe Biden has left. Has he left? Is he gone yet? Please, please. I feel so much better. All right, uh, I do have to go in a moment. Sandra, hello.
5: Hello, Greg. Um, while I was swimming this morning, I was thinking about a memo that all the members of the National Women's Republicans received, and it was a basic memo. It was saying that we have to dress accordingly. The summer is over. No more jeans. No more t-shirts. No, no, nothing like that. So I thought of um, John Fetterman and Chuck Schumer allowing everyone now to dress as they please. And I thought too long certainly don't make it right. And then I thought, what is Schumer's ulterior motive with this uh, condoning Fetterman style of dress in, in the Congress? I believe we have to dress for success. I feel it's respectful. I see you every night wearing a suit and tie, and I smile. and It's it's correct and it's proper. And I wanted to share that.
0: Well, thank you, Sandra, very, very much. Uh, you should see what I'm wearing. Uh, <laughs> what kind of pants situation I got going? It's, it doesn't always. It's not always suit pants. I'll tell you that. No, I do like to wear uh, comfortable uh, pants. And suit pants they get wrinkled and they get bunched up. But uh, I do like to keep it together. Thank you, Sandra. All right, and now I have to go. uh, Barbara, hello.
5: Hi, Greg. I'm still looking at this D.C. judge who was so out of place with what she said in her courtroom. And um, she actually totally misstated when she said that there is no restriction on abortion in D.C. Meanwhile, the Born Alive Infants Protection Act applies to every child in the United States, whether they're born normally or whether they survive an abortion, the instant they are born and breathing, they have all the protections of every citizen. And the doctors are required by this act to do everything they can to help this baby survive, just as they would a baby who was very much wanted and having trouble after birth. So this judge is typical, though, of what we're seeing on the left here, where they twist the law twist the Constitution, she actually said a couple of months before this case, knowing she was going to have it, she said that, oh, just because they've overturned the Roe v. Wade doesn't necessarily mean that somewhere else in the Constitution there is not a right to abortion.
0: All right, got to get and, the phone. What's the judge's name again?
5: Uh, judge Colleen died. It's a complicated name. All right, Judge
0: Colleen, <laughs> you did a bad thing. You're a bad judge. Bad judge. And you know what? We're allowed to say that, Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland is trying to say you can't criticize any specific judge, any specific prosecutor. Of course you can. Of course you can. What the hell is he talking about? That is another country, pal. Hey, Jerry, Chris, Rick, Rachel, sorry I didn't get to your calls. To be continued tomorrow.